When I come to the front of the hall in the evening to offer some reflections, I like to take a few moments to just pay my respects and express my appreciation and gratitude for the teachings and for the life of the Buddha. And it's a uh, it's an interesting thing to have a, a relationship to, to someone who I never knew, who lived a long time ago, and yet who I feel a real sense of appreciation for and gratitude for. And so the traditional form for that is something that I enjoy engaging with. And there's a sense that I have when sitting down here to endeavour to share something of what I've received from the remarkable teachings that the Buddha offered this world, that in a sense I'm kind of connecting with where that comes from and uh, my own contribution to what's offered here is, uh, it's not insignificant, but it's certainly not where what's coming is coming from, shall we say. Um, And I'd like to speak about one of the central themes of the Buddha's teaching this evening and what it means to see more clearly the nature of things, the way things are, we could say. This is something that has a central place within the teachings and the practices that we're engaged in. So far as we're interested in well-being, so far as we're interested in the transformation of our life and our world, we may recognize that if we're not able to clearly see and to understand what is happening, what's taking place and how it is that the world is, we could say, we easily find ourselves in conflict with it, struggling, suffering, frustrated often. And the the Buddha understood that much of our and taught us to reflect on the degree to which much of the suffering we encounter arises from a kind of blindness and not seeing. And the word that he used was avidya, which I think has the same root as as, as, uh, Indo-European languages, of which I'm not an expert. Um, But vid, as in like video or vision, has the same root. And avidya, it's to not see, to not see. It's sometimes translated as ignorance, which sounds a bit like stupid, And I think it wasn't intended to be a pejorative term. But uh, not seeing, blindness. And so in this tradition, one of the ways in which we can understand wisdom is that way of seeing and that understanding that when we live in accordance with it, suffering is reduced, is healed, is transformed, is released. And ultimately the fulfilling, the perfection, the completion of wisdom is the resolution, we could say, the ending, the dissolution of suffering. And so this has a really central place in what we're engaged in here. Some years ago, I was meditating early in the morning on a winter, I think February day. And after I finished my morning practice, I opened my eyes, as one does, feeling kind of bright and clear, which isn't reliably what happens, but on this occasion it was. 
And I saw on the windowsill about uh, maybe six, seven feet or two metres in front of me, a snail. And I was immediately entranced and captivated being someone who enjoys sort of creatures and such things. And um, I was looking at the snail and my mind, having been relatively quiet, clicked into gear very quickly. I said, oh, it's a snail. And it was like, how did it get in here? What's it doing? And... Um, and I was watching this little snail, and of course my mind, having asked the question, started answering it. You've probably noticed that phenomenon on occasion in your own mind. And it's like, oh, actually, it's coming because the window is open. And the window is open, although it's a really cold, frosty winter morning, because, in fact, the, the paintwork on the window had been peeling and fading, and so the window had swollen up in the rain, and then it couldn't actually close. So I had trimmed it with a plane, and then I'd painted it. And because I'd painted it, I couldn't close it or it would stick, so I'd left it open. It was, you know, it takes a moment to say it. I, the thought happened in half a second. And I was like, oh, so that's how it came in. That's why the window was open. And then I thought, why did it come in? It was a frosty morning. Why is it coming here? And I realised, it's probably really cold out there. It might freeze. I don't remember seeing snails in winter. It's not really what, when they turn up. So I was watching its little beady eyes on the ends of stalks and just feeling that sense of the delicate spiral of its shell as I was looking at it and just sensing this delicate little life that's come in from the cold. And I thought, there's nothing here for it to eat. And it's like suddenly I started to become quite concerned because, of course, if I put it back outside, it would freeze. If it came in here where it was warm, it was going to starve. And I was quite distressed for a moment or two before my mind moving at some enthusiastic pace. I thought, I know what. I'll take it to my neighbour's greenhouse. <laughs> and in some degree of innocence, not being a gardener myself of any great note, I didn't think there would be a problem with that. In fact, I was really happy. I thought, ah, there's the solution. It's warm. There's plenty to eat. I'll take the snail to my neighbour's greenhouse. And so I got up from my cushion, reached towards the snail, which turned out to be a wood shaving <laughs> in a little spiral shape that I'd trimmed off the window the day before. And in that moment, something just burst. This whole world, this whole problem, my wonderful solution, all of it. It wasn't quite as I had imagined things to be on closer examination. And what we might notice of ourselves as human beings is we, we tend to move quite quickly in life. We tend to need to or feel we need to at least. And as a result, we mostly tend to not spend too long paying attention to what's happening. We tend to respond to our first impressions, our perceptions, the ideas and the conclusions we form based on a relatively cursory or brief or surface examination of experience. And because when we operate that way, as we often and I would say perhaps mostly do in conventional living situations, we easily come to misunderstandings, misperceptions, and as a result we become entangled with the world, the life, and what we experience as ourselves. 
And so in meditation practice, one of the aspects that we're working on that's very central to its transformative power is this capacity we have for being present, for being awake, that allows us through spending time with and getting to know and seeing more clearly and fully what's actually going on here. To We start to be able to reverse those misperceptions. First of all, to recognize them, and then actually start to see more clearly and more accurately or more usefully what is taking place <clears throat> excuse me what is taking place and this leads to a transformation in our experience in our life the buddha invited us to contemplate and to reflect in many realms and one particular realm was this area of misperceptions and he pointed out that through the misperception of three particular characteristics of experience through misunderstanding, through not seeing them, we tend to become entangled with our life. And through that entanglement, we feel bound, we suffer, we struggle in ways that are, in ways that don't have to take place in that form, that it's not somehow inevitable that we become bound in our life, with our life. By our, by, by our life. And so there's a, a process of contemplation that goes together with the, with the simplicity of just noticing what's happening, of just being where we are, of connecting with our body or taking a step on the grass that, that starts to become curious and interested to notice, okay, what, what is it that I'm seeing what, in what ways am I making assumptions? In what ways does the truth of my experience, as I can see it now, reflect my habitual assumptions and conclusions? And so the first of these that the Buddha spoke of, and it's, it's something central, anyone who's been in contact with the teachings of the Buddha to any degree will be very likely to have come across this, the tendency we have to see that which is changing as somehow permanent. The way we relate to things that are happening is if this is going to continue the way it is. And so much struggle comes for us with our experience because of that assumption, that perception. When things are difficult for us, if you look, if you see, what you'll often find that within the difficulty, difficult as it may indeed be, it's often the perception, the sense, and maybe the fear that this will continue. That it, if I don't do something about it, it's going to stay this way. And there's a way in which we project the difficult experience into the future as if it somehow has permanence, as if it has continuity. And that is what we can't deal with. Often, when it's difficult, and the sense is I can't deal with it, it's the idea projected as a future we can't deal with. And of course, that's true, because we can't deal with it because it's not there, it doesn't exist, it hasn't done that yet any more than I could deal with the snail. It's not so. We can't deal with that projection to the future. And interestingly, right now, experiencing it right here, I'm already dealing with it. I might not be enjoying it, but... It's difficult, sure, but I'm here, it's here, 
It's already happening. And so that, that sense of the threat or the fear or even sometimes the experience of something is overwhelming. A lot of it is to do with the way we unconsciously project it into the future. And so the mechanism of fear and of the whole package of resistance and anxiety that goes with it is very much about not just that we're not present, but that we're assuming what is in our experience is somehow going to continue or is going to repeat. Even if things repeat, even if they come back, the fact that we can meet them, we've survived them, means we'll be able to meet them and survive them in the future, should they reappear. And likewise, the tendency to, to take hold of, to, 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 to grab onto that which we might find enjoyable, whether it be a, a moment of blissful meditation or a delightful um, experience outside. And I was just out for a run now and um, stopped at one point as I just saw what seemed to be a little something that shouldn't be there in the field. And then I realized as I stayed a little longer with it, it was a deer. And I could feel immediately that sense of, please stay, please stay, please stay. I'm friendly, I'm friendly, you know. And it was like, of course, the deer's not going to stay around very long. And probably that's a smart thing as far as being a deer is concerned. But that very quick movement to just, I want to keep this experience. And just, can I just relax and enjoy it? Because it'll be gone in a moment. And it was. And it was lovely. And I didn't need it to stay any longer, in fact. And if it had, I might not have got back in time to do this, so that wouldn't have been entirely a good thing. Um, but that sense of grasping towards the pleasant comes out of the, again, the sense that somehow this could be made permanent, somehow this could be made into something that lasts or something that will last. And yet, as a number of you have mentioned and seen and started to reflect on and being here, as we pay more and more careful attention, as we, in fact, are really there for the process of experience and life unfolding, what we see is that it keeps changing. It keeps moving, morphing, reshaping and reconfiguring itself. <coughs> and there is, in fact, nothing that stays the same for very long at all. Even as someone was saying today, that, that sort of noticing how, how pain, it's not actually a, a something. It's over here, then it's over there, and then it's like this, and then it's like that. We kind of put a big fat sort of concept on it and say, it hurts. Um, and we think it's the same thing. It still hurts. It was hurting before, it's hurting now, it's probably going to hurt all week. But actually, the truth of the inner experience is, I oh, know it's this, it's that, it's something else. So we start to see that things are changing, that are moving, but it's very easy for us not quite to recognize that. And there's a, a beautiful stanza from the, um, the Diamond Sutra, one of the, uh, the teachings of the later northern Mahayana school of Buddhism. And it, um, it speaks of a, or a way we can look at and relate to our experience that I find very beautiful and touching in this context and so it begins in this way you should look upon the world a drop of dew a star at dawn a bubble in a stream a flash of lightning in a summer cloud 
a mirage, a phantom, and a dream. And there's something I find very powerful about that sort of almost like cascade of images of transient momentary phenomena. That we kind of feel sometimes when we're close to our experience, we see the ripple, the flow, the change, just in a single breath. We call it a breath, but in fact it's just a flow, a ripple of changing experience, and the next one's different, inevitably. But we don't necessarily live close to that perception, towards that, to that understanding. So often we live within this hope, in a sense, or belief that somehow we can control this fluid medium that we call life. Somehow we can fix it or shape it into a particular way so that we'll be able to, to kind of make it conform to our preferences. And the experience that describes what that does for us or how that is for us, I think quite beautifully and poignantly actually, is rope burn. It's like trying to hold on to our life as it moves, trying to grip it so tightly. But we can't, and it's pulled through our hands, through our fingers. And of course, as we know, rope burn hurts. If we don't let go, one loses the very skin of these tender, tender things, our hands. And so too... That, that that activity of grasping, of craving, of clinging, of holding on, that we notice ourselves engaging it in the hope that somehow we could succeed at it. What we realize is, oh, the friction that creates is painful. And this is a large element of the suffering that we experience that we start to realize, oh, when I let go, when I open to the fluidity and the movement of the experience, then a considerable degree of the pain that's so often there begins to drop away. The experience is still doing, the life is still doing what it does, as it always has. But somehow being in a relationship of openness, or we could maybe say receiving, receiving our life rather than trying to grab it and hold it tight. There's suddenly space and possibility that opens up. And so seeing this, this movement, this fluidity of life, as we begin to, to pay attention to and notice that aspect of what's taking place, there's a, there's a natural invitation to us to let things be. Things that aren't easy for us, let them be. That doesn't mean we can't respond and make choices or take action where we need to in response to things that need to be addressed in our life. But yet doing so from a place of just knowing that this is where we are to begin. And maybe some transformation is possible, but we need to start in a place in which we're open to where we are, even if it's difficult. Letting things be. It doesn't mean passivity. It means I open to how it is. And equally letting things go with those things we might wish for, long for, and get excited when they turn up, and the sense of how, how much we tend to want to grab them, to keep them. Of course, it's like life is like water. I mean, life is mostly water, as we know. But it's also like water. You can receive it in your open hands, and you can drink if you wish. But if you grab it, how much water do you end up with? I mean, it's a different meta metaphor than the rope burn. But if you grab water, you don't get any. If you tried to grab some doesn't work 
you can receive it. And it's interesting, that image, what that is, to open the palms of one's hand, hands. And likewise, in practice, this invitation to, okay, let go. Letting go of our demand that things be a certain way. It's exposing ourselves. It's opening us. There's a certain vulnerability in that that, to begin with, we're not entirely comfortable with. We're not sure it's a really good idea to allow that openness, to allow that vulnerability. But in fact, as we start to see that the vulnerability is here, even when we try to hold on, it doesn't take that away. We're still subject to this fluidity and uncontrollableness of life. So we start to, in this way, reflect upon the implication of the fact that things change. That maybe we could hold them differently. And again, that sense of the open hands rather than the the clenching of the fists. The second misperception that the Buddha spoke about was the tendency that we have to see that which is not capable of giving us lasting fulfillment or satisfaction as somehow having the capacity to do so. Now, there are many things we can be touched by that we can be deeply appreciative or enjoying of in life and value and treasure. And of course, it's natural and appropriate that we do so. And just, you know, standing in the circle as we were this afternoon, there was a moment where I was just, I realized I was just really enjoying it. I stopped needing to sort of remember what the time was so I could ring the bell and make sure we weren't there until, you know, Someone felt like that was too long, maybe. But it was more, I just was just enjoying it. And it's lovely to feel a moment of, wow, the the quality of that connection with the earth, of one's feet just somehow so rooted in the the ground that I could really feel the earth holding me up. There was no work in it for this body. And, And again, something like that, how sweet, how lovely, and how quickly the mind can go, Oh yeah, that's that's it. This is where I've got to be. This is going to do it. Let and maybe you're listening, thinking, "Oh, that's what I need to do." There, yeah, yeah. That's the kind of experience. Maybe I'll get that one next time. You know, either the experience we have that we want to continue, or the experience we haven't got that we wish to produce. We often project onto it that sense of if and when I get there, or this particular configuration of conditions when I make that happen, then. Ah, it's going to be good. It's going to be all right. I can stop there. And yet, of course, the fact that things change says to us, if we reflect on it, there isn't somewhere we're going to get to we can stop that's like that. We might find wonderful conditions, circumstances, places to live, vocation or work or engagement to engage with, people to be with, partners, friends, family, all of this beautiful, lovely, and yet and wonderful and inspiring meditative experience. And yet, all of it is subject to change. None of it lasts forever. And because of that, none of it can give us something that lasts forever. Everything is subject to that.
because of that, we perhaps are invited or we recognize that it doesn't make sense to place the weight of my life's fulfillment upon some idea of the conditions or circumstances I have to produce or make happen that will somehow give that to me. Because even if I get there, I'm not going to be able to stay there. And again, check our lives. Look and see. We've seen this happen before. It doesn't take that long in one's life to notice. Of course, what's equally true about this is, and the reflect or the um, reverse under or the other side of that understanding, the implication, which isn't maybe so often spoken about in this way, is that just as no single condition or circumstance or experience in itself can give us lasting or complete or absolute fulfillment, so too no experience or condition or situation can in itself present us with some lasting or complete or absolute obstacle. Because these things too are not forever. And so this isn't somehow intended to be a, a sort of a, a pessimistic observation that, oh gosh, looks like I better sort of, you know, get prepared for being pretty miserable because nothing's going to make me happy. No, that's not what's being said here. It's the way we fixate onto particulars and think only if it's like this. Is it so? Can it be so? Because in fact, it could be like this. It could be like that. There are many possibilities in which we can find what we're looking for, in which we can live what our heart wishes to live in contact with. The third area that the Buddha spoke about, the misperception we have, is the tendency to see things as being or having some independent and separate existence when they do not. Seeing ourself, others, and all kinds of things, in fact, is somehow existent in a discrete, cut-off and disconnected way somehow as if they existed out of relationship from everything around them. And yet, if we look and we see and we watch our experience as it changes, as it morphs and flows, what is constantly being revealed is the way that as conditions change, so too does the experience. And the reality is, if we look carefully, that everything is dependent upon other things. Our existence is dependent upon many things. Food and water, our parents, this earth, many more. So too the existence of everyone else and all things are dependent upon conditions and each of those conditions equally is dependent upon other things. Right now we're all relying on the air that's here to breathe and the water we've been drinking in the day when it was hot. And this very air, it's moving between us as the water is. You know, the water has travelled not just through pipes and 
tea urns to get to us. It's travelled through other beings to get to us. As has the air. It's travelled through plants. It's travelled through creatures. None of this could we be here without. And if we look, we see there's nothing we can actually point to that is separate from that, that exists somehow on its own, that is unaffected or is independent from what is around it. It's not trying to make some statement about existence or non-existence. It's not saying that you're not there. Because as what happened, you know, in the Zen tradition of student comes in and says, I've realised I'm not there. You know, the master is probably going to wisely give him a good thwack with her staff. And um, then they realise, oh yeah, there's something here all right. <laughs> we don't do that so much in this tradition. Which you may or may not be disappointed or glad to hear. But there's something about that sense of just the questioning what is this that I call me that's going on here? This body, this mind. We so often imagine a sense of our self-existence separate from the flow of our experience. Somehow the owner of it or the subject of it. And yet, if we look at our experience, what do we find? And we've been essentially for the last three days looking at our experience, being encouraged to just see what the, what's here, what's going on. And what we find is that there's thoughts, there's feelings, there's sights, there's sounds, there's smells, there's taste, there's touch. I think that's all of them. Did anyone have something go on in their experience today or yesterday or the other day? wasn't a sight, a smell, a taste, a touch. What's the other one? Thought. A thought and a sound. Thank you. I should be able to remember that list. But sometimes my brain gets fuzzy. There's all of this going on and there's this capacity for knowing it. There's the simple knowing of the experience and yet the knowing arises with the experience can't be separated from it you can't go over somewhere else and look at it it's just here experience being known and it's changing it's fluid not changing according to our plan or our idea otherwise we'd have changed into something at least some of us would have something that looked quite different it's changing it's not in our control what does that say to us? Like, where's the body you had 10 years ago? You know? Gosh. Or 20. Or for some of us, 30. Or more. You know? It's gone, isn't it? It's just gone. Not just the, the appearance, shape and form and capacities, but even the, the very material it was made up with. It's gone. Hopefully there's a few neurons that persist from back then. But not that many, it seems. And where's the body that you will have in 10 or 20, if we're still here, or more years' time? It's not out there somewhere, waiting for us to pick it up at the, you know, get to, okay, there's tomorrow's body, get it out of the cupboard, put it on. It doesn't exist. It's not there. 
There's just this arising here. And your mind too. You know, how many thoughts have you had today? How many thoughts? I hope you didn't try and count them. But, um, I'm not, so I'm not asking for an answer here. But how many thoughts in just one day when we weren't even intending to try and have too many thoughts? How many thoughts have we had in our life and where are they? All those really important ones that really had to be thought. That really had to be thought about again, actually, or several times, in fact. Where are they now? They're just gone. They're gone. And all the thoughts that will... I'm not wanting to say that I know what will happen in the future. Maybe it won't be like this, but maybe sometime in the near future thoughts will come pouring into your mind. Where are they? Well, the thoughts you'll have tomorrow, probably thousands of them. They're not sitting there waiting for you to pick them up and say, OK, let's have some thoughts. They emerge out of something remarkable and mysterious. And our relationship to what it is that's happening is something we're invited to reflect on. The Buddha put it this way. He said, if this experience is changing and uncontrollable and doesn't give rise to a lasting condition of fulfillment or satisfaction, does it make sense to take this to be who and what I am? To take it as self? to somehow define ourselves by these experiences. If we look at who we may imagine ourselves to be, how we think about what we call me, this that I imagine is who I am, what we notice is a whole, num- is a whole bunch of ideas and labels and thoughts and feelings, images and roles. All the things that we can remember that we've done or we didn't do, where we succeeded, where we didn't succeed, where we felt like we were looking great, where we felt like we weren't looking so good, where something was sweet, where something hurt, where something was just as it should have been and where something really was not. All these kind of somehow amalgams of things that we somehow come to some conclusions about me on the basis of. And with it we see certain preferences, certain habits, certain qualities you can recognize, yeah, so this is a certain capacity that's here. That's a certain capacity that isn't here so much. We can notice all of that. And with it, when we think in this way, there's often a sense of me is somehow removed from. Me is somehow separate from the world, separate from others, separate from life. It's like we have the story of my history, my present and my future, in which I was, I am, and I will be. And yet we don't really look that carefully at what is that sense. What's going on in that package, in that perception? What we notice is that there's a way in which we feel alone. We feel isolated. We long for connection, it seems, as human beings. And yet there's this sense that what's going on in here, it's me. It's me. And yet, interestingly, that's a thought. And there's all these thoughts going on, some of which we've seen aren't entirely reliable. And yet that thought arises. Why did I do that? Of course, 
I didn't mean to do that. I didn't want to do that. But I go, why did I do that? When I've done something I'm not so happy about. And yet we see, oh, it just happened. Or, I'm really glad I did that. And it's something we feel good about. Wow, that was really good. I did that. But did we do that? Or didn't it just emerge and somehow become possible? And when that happened and became possible, it seemed that's the only thing that was possible in that moment. I couldn't not get distracted by the sound of that car driving past and then start to think about something based on that. I couldn't just not have that happen. It's just what occurred. And I sometimes think it's a bit like a circus clown who might walk into the ring after the performance of some remarkable acrobats doing something amazing. And the, and the clown walks in and says, it was me, I did that, yep, I made it happen, I was the one up there. And the audience would look around and go, yeah, we know this is part of the entertainment. Likewise, the thought in the mind that somehow defines me by what's happening gives the sense that somehow it's separate from what's happening. But it's not. It's actually part of what's happening. And so we can start to look and see, oh, what happens as a result of this? When we identify with the thoughts of I like, I want, I don't like, I don't want, and we are always trying to get the what I want and get away from what I don't want, what we notice or what we, don't, what we maybe don't see in the frustration and the struggle there is that we don't choose what we want. We don't get to decide, oh, I think I'd like to want this, or I think I don't want to want that. No, wanting is just for this. And you can't decide, I'll want something else. It doesn't happen. It doesn't work. Or if we don't want something, we can't, oh, I'd really like to want that. I don't know if you have the sense of that, but it's not like that. We somehow don't quite recognize that the wanting or the not wanting, those powerful forces and urges, they arise with a long biological history of survival and sustaining of existence, but they're not something in the service of fulfillment and well-being. So what we might notice is the difference in our experience when we recognize, oh, there's something arising that's difficult. And, and the, the thought might be, this: I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day and we can actually sometimes see oh this is fear doesn't mean we shouldn't perhaps pay attention and check out and see is there some danger here do I need to take care of myself but notice the difference when we can see something oh his delight arising oh rather than oh I'm happy I've got here it's, I've got here rather than, oh this is this is happiness or this is delight oh let me experience that let me let me know what this experience is that sense of identification with the experience comes together with the contraction and the attempt to hold on to or to push away. And when we see, oh, yeah, in these conditions where something arises that reminds me of something that I found really difficult in my past experience, fear is going to arise. As a young man, I grew up in the, the... the, the relatively deep south of the central sort of New Zealand South Island. Um, I call it the deep south because I didn't really know when I grew up there that it was kind of quite a, I have to say, sort of almost like a redneck culture. 
It was a very rural um, farming community, very conservative. Um, And one of the things that we would sometimes do, being foolish young people as we were, would go and sort of mess around with things like motorbikes. And so we were playing this game where, in in the field, not on a road... A bunch of us standing in the middle and someone else was riding, or two of them, riding motorbikes towards the people standing who had to jump out of the way. That was the game. It's sort of like, sort of an extremely stupid form of whatever that game is you play in school that's like that. Um, and I, at one point, carefully stepped to one side to avoid someone who carefully swerved the same way to avoid me. And bang. Um, and I've still got the... I was kind of proud about the amount of damage I did to the motorbike, I have to say even though I flew through the air. I survived it, so did my friend, fortunately. Um, Sort of put it down to sort of good rugby training and all of that. And yet, to this day, and that was a long time ago, to this day, if I hear the sound of a motorcycle, my whole body goes, as if I'm about to be run over or impacted. Even though, and so I know I have to stop and just look around and check. Okay. Is there actually any danger here? If I'm in the middle of the road, it's probably smart to get off the road when you hear the sound of a motorcycle, any vehicle. But otherwise, it's okay. Oh, okay. Oh, look at this. This is somehow being carried forward. The sense of fear of something from the past that was difficult. And the the fear isn't that helpful. The contraction, the tightness, the sense of check and see if there's danger, that's useful. That's helpful. There's nothing wrong with that. And if we can notice, oh, this is fear, rather than I'm afraid, which has an assumption that the sense of danger is actual, rather than it's a signal saying, look and see, is there any danger? Actually, many times there isn't. But we feel the way the past comes with us in that contraction. And that has some real... Sort of, it it weighs upon us. We could say. It's a little bit like the image that our teacher in India uses of someone who carries a heavy suitcase on their head to go to the, take a train journey, and uh, in India, people quite regularly carry things on their heads as a way of quite skillfully transporting such uh, sort of heavy items. Um, and in this, this, this sort of image or sort of story, the, the person walks onto the train with a large suitcase on the head and having got on the train, keeps the suitcase on their head for the whole journey. And I like, oh, actually, it was a fine way to get it onto the train, but at that point you could probably put it down. That sense of identification where we take these experiences to be somehow ours in a very tight way. It's, when that is released, it's like putting down something we're carrying that we, it doesn't quite make sense for us to carry. So much of what happens, we see, and you know, with the thoughts and reactions, we didn't choose these. We didn't make them happen. Our practice here is to see them, to attend to them, but not somehow to take them as definitive of who and what we are. So much of what we struggle with in life and in our experience 
is not because it's perhaps difficult, but because of who we imagine it means we must be as a result of it being so. And so much of what we long for and wish for in terms of experience is not because of the experience itself, but because who that allows us to tell us we are, ourselves we are, that we wish to be. We seek for the sense of a positive self-definition and we fear the sense of a negative self-definition. And so long as the experiences that are coming that aren't in our control are being used for that, we're trapped and we're stuck and we're bound to it. And it's a little bit like a, an image that uh, I remember hearing from a, a, a teacher in, um, in one of my early retreats in India, a visiting monk who has become uh, one of my sort of much-loved and important teachers, Ajahn Suchito. And he, he told a story with an image um, of a uh, someone who was on a ship and and piloting the ship in in, 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 in the in the ocean and the waves and the the wind and the currents and all of that and starting to wonder why the ship didn't always go the way that he was trying to get it to go and so eventually went down to look at the um the sort of the mechanism underneath and realized that the steering wheel wasn't actually attached to the rudder. <laughs> Does that explain anything about your life? If we understand that maybe that's some of what's going on. When we see that arising in us that we find difficult or challenging, we need to take care of that. But we don't need to define ourselves by it. To see fear, to see anger, to see jealousy, to see anxiety arising within us is not to need to define ourselves as I'm this person who's this. But actually, oh, this is something that's here. How can it be held? How can it be cared for? To see courage, to see clarity, to see wisdom, to see compassion arising is not to say, oh, I'm somebody who's this. To take ourselves, but it's like, oh, oh, this is arising, this is worth some clarity. Okay, how can this be used? What's skillful and helpful in a way of engaging with this? So, to neither take ourselves to be defined by the content of our experience, and yet equally not to somehow suggest that we're something separate from it. We could perhaps say we're not just this. Or we can't be confined within this. There's a way that our perception can open up. Our understanding of what's happening here can open up. Perhaps a little bit like a wave on the ocean and just flowing moving as waves do what's it like one might imagine to be a wave on the ocean oh kind of lovely seems like might be fun flowing along in that open space and then one could imagine what would happen if one starts to look being a wave with some good vision capacity 
at what's happening some distance away at the shoreline. The waves flowing along and then crashing into and disappearing, it seems, dissolving. One could get a little worried if one was a wave and one saw the beach coming towards one. One would think, no, no, I don't think I want to go that way. I think I'd like to go, hey, this thing hasn't got reverse. You know, it only goes this way. And of course, what happens? The wave crashes into the beach. The wave is gone. But what has happened to the water? What has happened to the water? It's completely unarmed. And that wave, that movement, that shape is never separate from the water. It's always of the water. And yet, were it to imagine, well, hey, I'm this wave, I look like this, I've got a pretty cool-looking curl. Or, I'm a bit of a flat wave, those other waves are a bit more sort of exciting than me. Or whatever story we might tell ourselves. In the end, it's all water. The wave does not define the truth of water, but nor is it separate from it. In way, that movement, the wave, is an expression of the nature of water, which is fluidity, movement. In fact, I once read somewhere some I thought rather um, lovely observation that uh, you know human beings were invented by water as a way of moving itself around. <laughs> And out for my run carrying a bottle of water. I was sort of reflecting on that. Here am I doing it again. Carrying, you know, moving some water around. And, uh, you know, even taking a drink is doing much the same, really. Kind of curious, though, isn't it? If we're here just to serve water's need to be moved around. Doesn't that make things feel just a little bit different? I'm not saying that's the definition of how it is or what we are either. But it's just useful to allow our sense of possibility to be stretched and to be opened. And so we're invited to contemplate, we're invited to reflect upon what what is this that's happening here? Not from an intellectual kind of trying to figure it out, trying to get the answer, trying to say, now I know it's like this or it's not like that, but more... If we can suspend the assumptions, the presumptions, the uh, the way in which we've concluded, I already know how it is and what's going on, and go and come more from a place of curiosity, of interest, of hmm, I wonder. So what is what's happening here? What's possible here? To rest in the simple wakefulness, the open, natural condition of life that is in contact with itself. (coughs) What we discover here isn't defined by the content of our experience, but nor is it somehow apart from that. It's just this that's here. 
what we call inside and what we call outside are so closely related we can't really separate them. The air keeps moving between them. The water keeps moving between them. Life is flowing continuously through the open gates and doors of what we call here or in or me and what we call there or you or outside as if there were such a thing. So we have this opportunity to explore and to discover for ourselves what it is that lies at the heart of this existence. That cannot be grasped or owned but equally cannot be departed from. that can be awakened and awakened to. So let's sit quietly together for a few moments. So may we all, in our practice here together and in our lives, may we, may we deepen in this capacity to see clearly through and beyond the appearance and surface of things, to understand the deeper nature of life and to know the truth of life that is unbound. for our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings, for the well-being of all that lives and all that is.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.